0: welcome back everyone to our special bonus episode. We are super excited to introduce you to Andrea. She runs the Crime Sheet, an excellent resource for extra crime details Forensic about stuff. psychology. Yeah. Forensic psychology. Just really awesome, awesome website for all of our crime aficionados. Yeah. Thank you for thank being you. here. Yes. yes. Thank you guys. How's it going? Good. 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 So we are doing this bonus episode on Richard Ramirez. After our Night Stalker episodes, we just kind of got together and wanted to talk about some more of the psychology side of Richard Ramirez since that was a really popular episode for us. Yeah, it was. People really ate that up. So we're giving you more. (laughs) Yes, Um, I love that. So what were your initial thoughts on this documentary?
1: I was recommended to watch the documentary by a bunch of my readers. They were saying like, oh, this is, if not, the most violent true crime documentary that is currently out there. And so I I don't really want to watch anything that's like super gory, but I was like, okay, like I need to check out what all the hype was up about because it was trending on Twitter. It was all over my Instagram timeline. So when I went to start watching it on Netflix, I was really surprised to see that a lot of the ways that they showed the crime scenes, it was almost like these 3D renderings and models that they would twist the camera perspective to show you different elements of the room that you wouldn't normally get in these documentaries when they show you photos and things like that. So I really just wanted to see it, to see what all the hype was about. I didn't know too much about the Night Stalker beforehand. So it was a good jumping off point to try to figure out more about him before going off and doing my own research. But yeah, super violent, but also pretty informative. Well, I was in the same boat.
0: I I think I had heard of the Night Stalker, but I didn't even know what his actual name was. I knew Mm -hmm. nothing. That's how I go into most of these true crime docs because this is like a new world for me. I'm enjoying going down that rabbit hole. But yeah, this one seemed to elicit a very visceral response from a lot of people. I mean, Mm -hmm. we had people commenting on our... Instagram page that the, the case was all a joke and like, he will be avenged. And it really reminded me of the groupies in the documentary. I, I just was stunned.
1: Yeah, definitely. I feel like anytime there is that, I would say, dangerous and unsavory side of the true crime community, where there are these serial killer fandoms, and unfortunately, sometimes they're really popular. We saw that a lot in the documentary too, where towards the end in the trial, you had all these young women going there trying to be his friend and saying they're part of this status cult with him. Yeah, definitely, unfortunately, really popular for sure. And that's just crazy.
0: I can't, I can't even fathom supporting someone like that. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing?
2: Yeah, I guess what is the pull that these women have to Richard Ramirez? Because even though he confessed to these murders, he talks about the horrific crimes in detail, like things that were not publicized. Yet these women were just so entranced and were just convinced that he was innocent.
1: Yeah, no, I think you totally just said it really well. There's definitely some enchantment of wanting to be around him, I guess. And maybe even, maybe the simple answer is morbid fascination. I don't know, something where people are flirting with death, flirting with darkness. And then of course, after he showers and everything later on in the couple episodes, he comes out as conventionally attractive. And I feel like that was the same draw with Ted Bundy too. Of here's this attractive man who also has this dark, mysterious side. And I want to be a part of that for whatever reason. So yeah, I don't know. Morbid fascination could definitely be a part of it. True. Well, that and that's interesting too.
0: I, I would be interested to see if there's any resources out there on that side of it too, that people have a tendency to think that more attractive people can't do
1: bad things. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think a lot to a lot of the research that shows attractive people typically get more what they want in life, whether it's a job or things like that. We see that in other areas. So of course, I feel like it would kind of translate over into true crime. And also when you close your eyes and think about, oh, what does a serial killer look like? Or who are these monsters? Right. You kind of think of somebody who's probably unattractive, like a ghoul under the bridge type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, exactly. So when somebody like Ted Bundy or Richard Ramirez after he cleans up in a sense comes out as somewhat attractive I think people go oh my god there's no way that this person could be this crazy killer because he doesn't look the way that a serial killer archetype would make you believe they would look
0: well another thing I was really interested to ask you since you have studied forensic psychology Richard Ramirez seemed really disorganized and a lot of the serial killers that I have heard about or have familiarity with were very meticulous very structured in the way they do things. So this Mm -hmm. one, I was like, oh, is that a thing? Like, do some serial
1: killers operate like this? Just erratic? (laughs) Yeah, no, you make a really good point. I think like you were saying, when you think about what a serial killer is or how they behave, I think a lot of people would think about somebody like Joseph James D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, somebody who is very organized, who plans out all of their murders beforehand and has some sort of forensic awareness Whereas, like you were saying, spot on, Richard Ramirez is completely disorganized in that sense. I like to think about the behavioral science unit with the FBI back in the 1970s, John Douglas, Ron Ressler, and Ann Burgess. When they started doing criminal profiling, in the beginning, they really started to categorize behavior as organized and disorganized after doing interviews with sexual serial killers and a lot of these different characteristics you can look at as data points to try to see and help you find out who these killers are. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Ramirez is completely disorganized. Yeah, and I think with his victim, just
2: the outcome of each of his attacks, there was a lot of them where they were just injured or they simply got away. And I think it, that goes into the lack of methodology that he had. He mm-hmm. wasn't ever consistent. And so you had some people that, were murdered. Some were just simply attacked, injured, or they got away clean. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I kind of wondered if that was carelessness. Like he literally cared so little about the people or the crime or what he was doing, or if it was more of that manic high Mm -hmm. that he he seemed to have around killing people.
1: Yeah, definitely. I remember at one point in the documentary when a reporter asks Frank Salerno what was Richard Ramirez's motive throughout all of his killing, and Salerno just said it was simply to kill. It's as simple as that, and I think you're right. I think Richard Ramirez really had the sort of triggered compulsion. He had impulse control, and so any time that he really wanted to act out on these violent urges, he definitely did And what you guys were talking about too, with the methodology and the victimology, that's something that's really common with disorganized killers to not really go after victims that they would see. If you look at like an organized offender, they would stalk somebody beforehand. Richard Ramirez did a little bit of that, but really he just looked at people who were victims of opportunity. Seeing a young woman go into her apartment late at night by herself. Okay. Then in a couple of days, he would go back and hit that apartment. We see that 53% of victims from disorganized offenders don't have a connection to the offender. And that's pretty spot on with Ramirez as well. And talking about even race, age, gender, ethnicity, Richard Ramirez was all over the place. And so are other disorganized offenders. So he really just went after anybody that he could.
0: So I heard you mention impulse control. Would that be like a developmental thing? Because I know we had talked a little bit about Richard Ramirez having multiple concussions and head injuries. Is that something that would have played into that?
1: Yeah, for sure. Anytime you have problems with impulse control, you're really just feeding into anything that your brain desires, right? I think in a more modern sense, you could think about impulse control with food or something like that. But for Ramirez, it was violence. It was anytime that he had an urge that he wanted to go do something, he absolutely did it. Yeah, what you were talking about too with like brain injuries. I don't know if you guys know the story of Phineas Gage. I don't do tell. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 So it's definitely a story that I feel like people hear more often in forensic or psychology 101 classes, but it's essentially a story of this man who was 26 years old and he was working on building the railroads in the 1800s. And it was his job to blow up the rocks that were in the ground so that the railroad tracks could be laid flat. And there was one day when he was doing that. And after he lit the fuse of this essentially bomb that he was creating to blow up the rocks. After lighting the fuse, somebody behind him called out his name. And so when he turned his head, his face was eye level with where the explosive was. And so this tamping iron that he used, which is like a three foot long iron pick, exploded and it went right up through his skull. It went behind his left eye and out his frontal lobe. But what's remarkable is he lived through the entire incident. Um, And he lived for 11 years after that. So even when the doctor arrived on the scene of the accident, Phineas Gage was awake and talking despite having part of his brain blown out. And so what we ended up seeing after he recovered, he had some documented behavioral changes. Some accounts say things a little bit differently. Some of them say that he became a deviant criminal with no empathy towards others. And other accounts just say that he was inappropriate or he didn't care about the future. He had no time management skills, that type of thing. But I think it's really interesting because today we know that your frontal lobe in particular is where you have your behavioral and emotional centers a part of your personality. So anytime you mess with your brain, you're really messing with your personality and all of those things. So I think especially with Richard Ramirez, having played football when he was younger, you're probably talking about multiple concussions, being abused as a child, maybe having his head hit in some way, over time can cause really serious damage. And then on top of that, Ramirez did a lot of cocaine, and we know that that actually increases violent behavior and can damage your brain too. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a true connection between how maybe he could have grown up differently if he didn't have all these brain injuries. Who knows?
0: I mean, it makes sense because he had a very dark upbringing. I mean, his cousin from Vietnam exposed him at a very young age to just horrific things. So I can imagine that would kind of set someone up on a bad path.
2: Mm -hmm. No, Um, absolutely. I mean, he had his cousin that returned from Vietnam. He had all those pictures of women that he did unspeakable things to. Do you think that maybe that played a factor into the way that there were unspeakable things
1: that Richard Ramirez did at his crime? I remember when they started to talk a little bit about that at the end of the documentary, my first thought was, oh, wow, this explains so much. I think especially the idea that his cousin had Polaroid photos of women's decapitated heads and that they were performing awful, unspeakable sexual acts with these these body parts. And for Richard Ramirez, who was young, impressionable, probably lost. I remember reading that he would sleep in a nearby graveyard to like get away from his family because of the abuse that he was suffering. That is so psychologically damaging. And so being lost and feeling like you don't have a support system. And then the only person that he's introduced to is this cousin who's coming from violence and sharing horrible war stories for Ramirez would have been really formative in a bad way. And later on in life, he obviously becomes this unfortunate serial sexual murderer. And I think a lot of that has to do with just learning those types of behaviors really young.
2: We've kind of discussed this a little bit between you and I, Yeah, but there's in my early true crime loving days, I was like, oh, these people are horrible. Like how'd they, how could they grow up and be like this? But we talk about these traumas, head injuries, and Different developmental issues. So there's that discussion of nurture versus nature. Mm-hmm. What is your perspective on that? Are serial killers made or are they born? Oh, the age I wanna know, question. I want to know your thoughts. <laughs> we don't have neither one of us have a psychology background. No. And mm-hmm. having your brain to pick today,
1: I have to know yeah. <laughs> what's your philosophy on it. No, definitely. That's a really good question. And I think forensic psychologists and researchers will really be looking at this for for decades and years to come. Because you're right, it is a question that I think a lot of people want answered for their own sake of mind too. To believe that somebody could grow up like Ramirez and go and kill and rape an unfortunate amount of people and then blame it on the fact that he grew up in a a bad environment and that, oh no, like this is something that's reversible. I think a lot of people would shudder at that fact that humans are doing this to each other. But to answer your question about nature versus nurture, I definitely think I fall along the line somewhere in the middle. And I think most people would too, because with Ramirez particularly, you do see that there is a bit of of both really, that he was nurtured into believing some violence is actually sought after sexually and things like that. But then in the same sense, there are some other people who maybe something is just a little bit off in their brain, and then it's triggered through other violence or triggered through other trauma, and then that unlocks a Pandora's box of of violence in the future. But I definitely think we're all born with different personalities. We're all born with different temperaments. So if you are already prone to being more aggressive or prone to being more violent, I think that definitely plays a part in the nature aspect, but nurture can definitely be swung one way or another for sure. I
2: think we see that with Kemper and Dahmer, like all the big names you see a little bit of nurture and nature, so.
1: Yeah, I was actually thinking about Kemper when just kind of formulating my answer just now because I did a whole paper on him uh, a couple semesters ago and the abuse that he suffered as a kid was just horrendous and how really his mother was the whole focus of all of his torment. Exactly, and then eventually when he murdered her, it's like, okay, great, like I'm done, I can relax now. It's so interesting to see how his upbringing really shaped that for sure. Well, I was reading your
0: article that you did on... Ramirez and some of his stuff, and I, I learned quite a few things from that. One that he grew up in El Paso.
2: Mm. I don't identify with that type of Texas.
0: (laughs) I was gonna say, like being from Texas, I didn't know that. That was kind of interesting that he grew up in El Paso and and then went out to California. Mm -hmm. Um, Texas has its fair share of of. Don't look at me. Horrible people. (laughs) I'm not looking at
1: you. I love that. Um, it's no Florida.
0: It's, well, it's not. That's true. But one thing that fascinated me was you talked about the, the psychology evaluation, the PCLR. Ramirez got a 31 out of 40. Uh huh.
1: Which is bad. <laughs> it's horrible. Not to, yeah. I mean, okay, but <laughs> not to other anybody, but like, honestly, if you are getting that high of a score, you are a Richard Ramirez. Like normal people aren't getting those types of scores. Yeah, the, the PCLR is a, it's a revised version of the Hare's Psychopathy Checklist. And he really created this as a assessment for individuals with psychopathy or who are psychopaths or suffering from antisocial personality disorder. Anybody can go take it online. I know I have multiple times over the course of like writing different articles. And I think it's something, don't quote me on this, 30 to 50 questions. And it gives you a range of answers. So it'll say something like, I get excited by violence, and then it'll be on a scale of Yes, I somewhat agree, completely agree, disagree, things like that. And so the questions talk about everything from violent tendencies to fantasies, sexual deviances, pretty much everything. And and then at the end, the computer will give you a score and like add up where you are on those answer spectrums and it'll give you a score. So yeah, the higher it is, the higher antisocial tendencies you have and tendency to be a psychopath. So Ramirez scored pretty high. I think I get anywhere from an eight every time I take it, five to eight something like that. We'll have to take it later.
0: I know now (laughs) I'm curious. I'm like, I want to find it. I want to see what my score is. Oh
1: no. (laughs) Yeah. It's like I said, it's free online. So there's a bunch of websites that have them.
0: Okay. And I would also be interested. This is so far out of the realm of Richard Ramirez and what we're talking about, but I would be so interested to see how people who are in the true crime community score versus someone with no no relation doesn't really enjoy the true crime side of stuff. I would be super Uh interested to see if there's like just a slight upward tick in the true crime community for
1: that. Yeah, I honestly wouldn't doubt it. I think a lot of us, whether it's for research or for even for entertainment, the amount of stuff that you consume in the true crime space can get really morbid. It can feel really violent. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, I I wouldn't be shocked if we score a little bit higher than the average Joe. (laughs) Well,
2: I think about myself. And some of these documentaries that we watch, I'm like, the Mendez brothers, crime scene photos. I'm like, the FBI is going to be on my front
1: door any uh,
2: second. <laughs> I'm just I on know. a red flag.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, CrimeCon is was this past weekend. And there was an amazing talk by Laura Brand, who's a private investigator and also a forensic psychologist, and she's doing a lot of really great work with the Bitaker and Norris case. They're prolific serial killers out in California. A lot of California stuff that we're seeing, by the way.
0: California and <laughs> Wisconsin seem to get a lot of the serial killers.
1: Yes, exactly. It's probably, there, that's a whole other episode of why I think that California has some of that draw. Totally another episode. But anyway, during Laura Brand's talk, she was talking about what's called the Lynette Tapes. And it's this horrific audio of Bitteker and Norris murdering one of their victims. And only clips of it are online. The FBI actually use the, they use the audio recording to desensitize new recruits and new agents because it is so horrific. And what you were saying too, about looking up Menendez crime scene photos, I was doing that during the crime con thing. I was looking up the audio, which is awful to admit, but I needed to know what they were talking about. Definitely. There's like a morbid fascination in that for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that drives a lot of stuff that I know we talk about. That's that's why documentaries exist because people have this morbid fascination to not only death but the minds of people that do horrific things. Mm-hmm. That's one of my biggest things. I just want I guess I have the same curiosity. I just I want to know how someone comes to think that way. What in their brain goes, this is a good idea.
1: Yeah. So why did you get into forensic psychology? You you hit the nail on the head for me. It was the same thing. (laughs) I mean, I actually started getting into true crime from Criminal Minds, the scripted TV show. I would watch it all the time in middle school and my parents hated it because they were like, it's so graphic. You're so young. You can't be watching this type of stuff. But I was so interested in it because I didn't realize that, oh my God, you could use psychology as a way to catch or even understand criminals to then further catch future criminals. And that concept was so crazy to me. And it was around the same time in middle school where I fully came to realize that there are awful people in the world and innocent people go missing. They are murdered all the time. And a lot of these families don't have answers. And so realizing that all around the same time, I was like, oh my God, how can I fix this? And pretty much from middle school on, I have wanted to study forensic psychology. So the rest is really history. Finding the forensic psychology program at John Jay in New York City just felt like a dream. It's an amazing program where as a freshman in college, you immediately come in and you start taking profiling classes, and you start taking forensic psychology classes. So it was really great to get thrown into it super early on. But yeah, same as you, I just couldn't fathom or understand how people, something switches in their brain, and they just become super violent and hurt other people. It's insane.
0: It's, it's wild to think about that there's just people out there that do that with no remorse. Mm -hmm. I accidentally squish a caterpillar, and I'm like, oh my god, are you, I'm so sorry. Yeah. so the fact mm-hmm. that people can like do horrific crimes with no emotional connection just blows my mind.
2: And I yeah. think that that fascination that you were saying with criminal minds is this is where a lot of the advocacy for these innocent people that go missing comes from is people from the true crime community being passionate enough mm-hmm. to get justice and resolution for these families.
1: I know anytime that there's a way to kind of, I started to realize pretty young, like in high school and to stuff of looking at documentaries and then trying to think beyond it of how can I help or what about this that I'm learning? Can I apply somewhere else? And I think it's really just about taking what we consume and do it thoughtfully and then trying to use that same information to propel other cases forward. Well, and
0: I think we're kind of coming into a curve of that on the podcast. Like at first we're We're covering these documentaries and we're talking about the documentary and how the crime is presented and then with the crime. And I think we are coming to a point where we want to do more. We're like, okay, what can we do more to start to bring these kinds of issues to light, to help people, to use this as a way to advocate for people and victims' families and make a bigger impact, like a better impact rather than just consuming for the sake of consuming.
1: Mm -hmm. Um. No, I think it's such a great mission, of course. And then even in the true crime space, of course, the genre for many people is entertainment. And we know that there are, there are, whole TV channels created for the entertainment of consuming true crime. So it's not that it's bad, but like you're saying, too, the idea of not only taking what you're learning and then applying it so that you can advocate for other cases, that maybe there's a documentary about an unsolved case that isn't getting enough attention and then kind of putting that to the forefront of people's minds, too. So you're still getting a bit of both because, like you said, at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of what true crime is in the media is entertainment. And so just taking that and putting a little spin on it for advocacy purposes, I think is really great.
0: I was going to ask you to kind of in the same vein, is there anything you've come across or or learned about on the forensic psychology side of criminals that attempt to commit all these crimes for the attention? Is Mm -hmm. that a thing that
1: you've looked into at all? I can't think of a case on the top of my head, and I know we will the moment we're finished filming this. No, but you're absolutely right. There is a huge notoriety concept for a lot of these cases, and that's why you actually have a lot of false confessions that are not coerced by police, that are truly just people coming forward saying, oh no, I am the real Jeffrey Dahmer, and oh, I am the the Zodiac Killer. There's definitely an element of individuals who would want attention. Well, I think the
2: case, forgive me for forgetting his name, but you'll remember, is from Don't Fuck With Cats.
1: That was kind of like a notoriety.
2: Like, yeah,
1: that was a big
2: notoriety. He was just trying to get attention.
1: You are so right. And now that you're saying that, I'm like remembering a lot of these other details from it. A hundred percent. This guy totally was just posting these horrible animal abuse videos for the reaction that it was getting. And then eventually he escalated and graduated to unfortunately murdering a person. And he would, the the citizen detectives in the documentary were being taunted by Luca all the time. And what you were saying too, about the attention stuff, he created all of these fake accounts that were his fan accounts because he was saying that he was this famous Canadian model and it was truly just that he wanted clout. That was it. That's crazy. Like in the mind of a serial killer or just a
2: murderer plain Jane murderer we were talking about with Richard Ramirez disorganized like he was just doing it to kill mm-hmm. some people do it for revenge sake or notoriety or mm-hmm. whatever I mean there's a whole slew of things
1: yep sex drugs <laughs> and money <laughs> yeah. main that like motivators that's,
0: that's <laughs> no? why the 70s and 80s were so prolific now uh-huh. I know there it is
2: <laughs> lots of cocaine yes exactly lots of
0: cocaine yeah mm-hmm. that'll, that'll do it <laughs> so, Andrea, that's all I have. I think we've like you have answered all of our questions. This has been an amazing conversation. I think like we've covered everything that I had stuff to say on on the documentary. Is there anything that
1: you want to add or talk about? Like we are you did a whole profile on this guy. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I would just again reiterate that. He was a completely disorganized killer and he really fit into a lot of those archetypes. I and mean, it's unfortunate that a lot of people had to lose their lives because of it.
0: Yep, that, that's a very good summary of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> For sure. That hurts, <laughs> right? I know. Uh, that's always the hard side of doing the true crime stuff too, of like, ah, uh, these are real people with real families. And yeah. yeah. We wish we could have intervened sooner. I think people have learned
0: a lot from studying this particular case we now you know have research studies about head trauma and and psychopathy and like all these things that we've learned as as an experience of the Richard Ramirez case and other cases like it like we've come so far so yeah definitely okay so that is going to wrap up our bonus episode as always you can find us on crime tv on twitter tiktok facebook instagram instagram mm-hmm. that's it that's it crimetv at gmail.com and please 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 go check out andrea at the crime sheet she is on twitter
1: yeah i'm pretty much everywhere twitter instagram tiktok has her own website
0: with amazing articles all true crime related and forensic psychology related really really awesome so go check out her
2: pages as well we'll link your richard ramirez in our show notes yes they'll be right there. Thank you so much, Andrea. Yes, thank
1: you guys. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thank you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.